I thought I might answer these questions and uh, apologize for the confusion over times. One forgets the interconnectedness of things. <laughs> Changing one sign is not enough. So what I've done is I've uh, tried to separate out the ones which are more to do with um, how we put the <coughs> Dharma into practice in daily life and then uh, things to do with our meditation. The first one is learning that it is conditions, my condition, my conditioning, which give rise to the thoughts that occur has helped enormously to loosen their hold on me, <clears throat> not needing to believe them as true or blame myself for them or in other ways get behind them. This is a wonderful freedom to learn over and over again. There are conditions in the world, however, which seem more true and have more weight than my thoughts and opinions, and the reactions I, often, I have often seem justified, which gives them more power in my mind, harder to let go of than mere opinions. I am specifically talking about the policies of our government. I don't want anybody now to get excited, huh? has pursued with increasing, which increase environmental degradation, poverty worldwide and horrifically violence, war. Sorry to harsh your mellow. Hmm. <laughs> Let's find out what a mellow is. I'm wondering if you would be willing to share with us how you personally find or cultivate equanimity in the face of the despair, anger and fear that easily arise in the minds, reactions to such outrageous governance. <clears throat> well, uh, I'm not so sure I've got amazing equanimity, but we'll see. <laughs> uh, not, uh, not falling into the error of being too specific. Um, <clears throat> for me, this sort of uh, question uh, really uh, hovers around this whole idea of uh, power, influence, and... Um, in a way, just acceptance of the situation we're in. <clears throat> in the last days of the Buddha's life, uh, the world was cracking up around him. His, the two great kings who were his uh, close supporters, Bimbisara around uh, Magadha, which is Benares, these are Varinasi, and up towards the west, northwest, um, Pasanadi, king of Kosala. Both of them died <clears throat> and left sons who were really into... Um, aggression and uh, extending their territories. One of them, uh, uh, his name just escapes me now, the, the son of Bimbisara actually starved his father to death to take the kingdom and then, uh, some of you might know, supported Devadatta in taking over the order. So there was a, an internal rebellion against the Buddha there and he, he seems to have walked off with quite a few monks. And uh, there's some, um, there's some uh, rumor or some, some history that it carries on somewhere in, in India, David Arthur's uh, rebellious monks. On the other side, there was a man called Viduddhaba. Now, Viduddhaba was extending his kingdom. Uh, it had already been extended, really. The, uh, the Sakas were vassals under that particular king. You know, to talk in a medieval way. And uh, the usual thing, of course, was to intermarry. And by doing so, you created connections and, and uh, the power base. <clears throat> so he asked for 
the hand of a, uh, of a woman of the Sakya clan. And um, the Sakyas uh, thought that he was of a, a much lower caste than themselves, so they, uh, they got him to marry somebody of a low caste. When he found this out, of course, he was very angry, and he determined to wipe out the Sakyas. So when the Buddha heard about this, he, um, and of course one of his main monasteries up there, Vesali, that was, and Anathapindika's Jetta Grove was up that way. He went off to uh, meet Viduddhaba, who was on his way with the elephants, and uh, uh, discussed the problem with him, and Viduddhaba turned back. But of course, when you get home and it starts chewing on your mind again, he uh, very quickly got back onto his elephant and <laughs> rode off to the Zakas. So the Buddha again made his way and stood before him and uh, was able to persuade him that this was not the most skillful thing to do. So Viduddhaba again turned back. <clears throat> but again, you know, it does scratch on the mind and the heart's very upset. So he got on his elephant again and off he went. And the Buddha once more turned up and somehow was able to turn him back. So he went back and uh, I suppose everybody thought that was the end of it. But there again, it's very difficult to overcome these things. So he got on his elephant again, <laughs> and off he went. And uh, the Buddha didn't, uh, when they said to the Buddha, he said, that's it, I can't do anything. That was it. And according to the story, they, um, they sack the capital, the capital has to move, and obviously a lot of his own people are killed. That's an interesting story, you know. We think of, uh, we tend to think that just because the Buddha is fully enlightened and, and uh, you know, he can <clears throat> cross a river by simply extending his hand and finding himself on the other side, that uh, he can therefore change some of the route that history has to take. But uh, he knows the limits of his own power and the limits of his own influence. And I think that's what's important when we live <clears throat> in our societies, that we are fairly clear what we can do. Because when you, when you push beyond that, then you're into forcing people, you're into frustration uh, and grief, a sadness. So it's a case of being as clear as we can as to, in a given situation, whether it's international policy or just local or just a meeting, that we know, you know we have so much power to do something. And that's, and that's really knowing where your limits are on that on that border. <clears throat> Influence, of course, is getting other people to do what you want to do. And uh, there's that shade where power and influence mix, where you are getting people to uh, help you to achieve something. And then you move into that area where really all you can do is influence. You can write letters, send uh, scurrilous emails, things like that. And then that's it. That's it. You have to... Um, uh, just allow conditions to manifest, no matter how horrific in our minds they may seem, uh, one has to bear with it, you know. And um, uh, knowing that seems to me to be one of the definitions of uh, humility. Uh, humility is not a, particularly, not a word that we particularly like these days, uh, but it just means, you know, knowing where your power is, knowing where your, where your influence lies. And uh, when we talk about karma in this, in this sort of sense, we are born into a situation over which, um, you know, we have very little power to change things. And 
a lot of grief comes when we don't accept that. That's the way it is. And where all we can do is what we, is what we can do. Now, uh, the, other, the other problem when we find ourselves, you know, in, in a situation where uh, we feel things are going very wrong and we can't do anything is, of course, we start forming an antagonism towards the person who's doing the, the harm, creating an enemy. And, uh, and that boils over into anger and, uh, and all sorts of things. So there... Our, our task is to see enemies as our friends. If you remember, remember Jesus Christ, love your enemies. And I think there's somewhere, even the Dalai Lama talks about the Chinese as his friends, the enemy. <laughs> so <laughs> now does that mean you have to love them? Well, I don't think we need to go that far. Uh, I, think, I think a case of uh, non-aversion, at least... Um, you know, not to try to go against what the heart is, is feeling. You know, maybe it's feeling very averse, very angry. But at least we can make a decision uh, to do no harm. See, that's, at least that's a sort of midway, that at least we're not going to um, do any harm to that person, either by speech or by uh, physical action. And that at least uh, brings us away from turning what may be quite angry feelings and hateful feelings into some sort of action out into the world. And <clears throat> as we know, things like that only really make things worse. Then we come, uh, then, then, then you get into this business of righteous anger, you know, which, is, uh, which some people might justify, but there's nothing in Buddhism which gives anger any righteousness whatsoever. But that doesn't mean to say that you can't do something if you feel um, you need to. Um, I think we have to make a, a distinction, or at least I make a distinction, between force and violence. So force is that energy or that um, effort you need to put something right which is wrong. And violence is what you... What you it's the same thing with, with anger and frustration, with anger and revenge, rather. So even on small things, like um, you might bump into a table and, and, and knock something off it. So you can just very calmly pick it up and put it on the table, which is force. I mean, you, you need that energy to pick something up and put it on the table. Or, of course, you can give the table one hell of a kick and, <laughs> and bash this thing for being in the way. So it's a case of uh, those little uh, distinctions to make um, whatever actions we are going to take uh, be within the bounds of Dharma, uh, the bounds of what is, what is skillful, wholesome, virtuous, virtuous. So you can see when it comes to political action, you know, that, there's, that comes that shady area, doesn't there, where there's civil disobedience just shading into violence. So, you, you know, so a person has to decide where they want to be within the scale of things in order to change something which they see isn't correct. There's also the question here of opinions. I think sometimes we get uh, slightly confused about view, views and opinions. I mean, if there was anybody who had a view, it was the Buddha. Huh? I mean, he actually expounded right view. 
Whether he was attached to it or not, I don't know, but he definitely expounded right view. So there's nothing particularly wrong with having a view, but your relationship to it. So if, you're, if you have a view of something being right or wrong or skillful and so on, and, uh, but then there comes this little underlying sense, and I'm right, you're wrong, uh, then there's something, there's some relationship with the view or opinion which turns it into something very hard. And if you, if you think more of our opinion, if we think more of our opinions and views more as perspectives, then it does allow us a certain leeway of, of movement, you know, left and right. Most parliaments now are in some sort of arc to suggest this fluid movement between left and right, between different shades of opinion. I think it's only the the British Parliament that stand opposite each other and throw things at each other. It just shows the level of our civilization. A bit pathetic, really, but there we are. So um, uh, this business of, you know, when we get... uh, I know, upset and disappointed with what's happening politically. Um, it's a case of, you know, just being very real about what we can do, who we can influence, and recognizing that any negative feelings are coming from some sort of wrong, wrong position within ourselves. Oh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so what do you see as the role of re- relationship plays in spiritual seeking? Well, you know, uh, for those of you uh, who come in the morning to my little pet talks, uh, you know, I get, I get everybody that leads to make that sort of um, commitment to the day, you know, as a communal commitment. So the Buddha's, uh, you know, there's that little scene where Ananda says to the Buddha that after, after long consideration, he considers uh, good companionship to be half the spiritual life. And the Buddha says, oh, no, 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 no. He says, it's all the spiritual life. <clears throat> In other words, our uh, companionship and uh, support are so important for us. Um, I mean, as you know, here, working on your own is, is you know, it's, it's just that little bit more difficult than working with a group that's pushing all the same way. You've got to find other resources. And there's a time and a place for that. There's no doubt about it. But uh, good companionship um, is also here meant as uh, your, your teacher, whatever that might be. Um, you know, a direct meditation teacher or somebody whom you seek uh, advice from. So, I mean, that's, that's important for us, isn't it? I mean, you know, when, when I look back uh, just at my passage through Buddhism, I mean, I, well, I wouldn't have arrived anywhere without the people who actually, you know, taught me how to sit and explained the process to me and were able to create conditions around themselves that allowed us to meditate. So these are our kalyanamita, these are our good friends, as it's uh, put in the scriptures. But I think we can extend this even to, 
you know, just ordinary daily life. You know, if you have, a f if you have friends and especially a partner who happens to be practicing your way, then obviously that's, that's, that's of benefit, isn't it? I mean, you know, you both get up and do a bit of meditation. Um, I hear stories of, you know, where one partner has taken on meditation and the other one has found it just corruptive to uh, the whole relationship. You know, I, I didn't marry you in order to meditate and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> and uh, it's, been, it's been the cause of separation, been the cause of uh, horrific fights. So uh, to find, to be with a partner who at least um, supports your practice is, uh, is an enormous plus, isn't it? And, uh, you know, if, if you happen to be, you know, going along similar paths, then even more so. And, uh, I mean, this is the whole idea, in a sense, of, uh, of the monastic life. That's all the Buddha was institutionalizing. He was just, he, he said, listen, if, if you want to really, you know, go for it and uh, really put everything aside, all the worries of, um, uh, of the lay life and, you know, uh, marriage, kids, mortgage and all that sort of stuff, <laughs> and you just want to sit here and, and, uh, and purify your heart and get on with it, then uh, this is the institution for you. And, and the whole idea is that you, you join the institution for that reason. And, of course, what you get is an infrastructure. You, you know, like when I, <clears throat> when I got to um, Sri Lanka uh, and I found, you know, I, I just got there uh, and I asked for a hut to just get on with my own work and it was there. So somebody had made a donation. Uh, this little hut was built, a proper uh, brick hut, by the way, you know, with a toilet. And uh, it was there in this tree little garden, just for me, waiting for me. And, I, and, and that was it. And, and I'd, I'd wandered up uh, twice a day, and the food was there. Never asked for it. Nobody, and nobody came along and said, now, how are you getting on? Have you reached Sotapanna yet? You know? <laughs> well, you got another month. And uh, <laughs> see, there, was no, there was no conditions set. It was absolutely marvelous when you think about it. And uh, that's open to, uh, to anybody, you know, the, the infrastructure's there. More difficult in the West where we don't have that, um, uh, you know, deep support base for such a life. So uh, taking at all angles, uh, you can see that friendship on the, the path is, is, is uh, really crucial. Even the Buddha, I mean, fine, he, you know, as the Bodhisattva there, he came to the end. He, he came to a point where people couldn't help him, but he would never have found that point were it not for the teachings he got uh, from the others. It was only by this process of trial and error that he came to a decision that uh, really, you know, he had to make it on his own. He had to go for it or, um, or die. That was the, the situation, I think, at the end. So we have to seek spiritual friendship and cultivate it, cultivate friendship. And one of the things that... Um, I know I found tremendously helpful was the weekly group, even though I had to travel right across the city. It was just making that effort to be with people, just to meditate that evening, uh, would, uh, would bump my practice up till, you know, I, I'd go on a, on, on a uh, I think it was a Monday, and my practice would lift till Wednesday. And then, <laughs> and then it'd disappear by the weekend, and I'd be up there on Monday again for another little kick. So it's that, it's that business of, of, um, of, of being with people who um, are, you know, following a similar path. And surely that's true of any walk of life, uh, you know. 
anything you want to do, artists, uh, business people, and they all, they all, in a way, are supporting each other, even if it's by way of competition. So, yes, uh, of crucial importance. And sometimes, you know, one, one wonders, you know, how far along the path you'd have been if you'd happened to have found a really, really, an Arahat who was fully enlightened, pushing you and, and, and guiding you all the way. I don't know if it make much difference in my, in my, in my situation, but, but it, when, when you look around, there are obviously different levels of teachers, and some of them are very perceptive, and others not so. Not so. so, yes, seek good spiritual relationships. There's just a little question here about arahats. To the question about arahats, the Buddha's life stories mentions a hundred thousands of them at that time. Are these fairy tales? Or has the human condition so drastically changed? And has the Dharma been altered and cannot be properly conveyed? Ooh, that's a bit desperate, isn't it? Uh, it's, uh, it's one of these things that you come across which is uh, a little bit um, disconcerting, actually. You'll hear it uh, from the hierarchy of Buddhist monks, especially in Sri Lanka, where they'll tell you these days it is utterly impossible to make any spiritual headway because this is the Kala Yoga. We are moving towards the end, so forget it. Um, And I think that's just this Eastern idea of time and the idea of circular time and that this time is, is awful and we're getting worse and worse. Well... I mean, in a sense, of course, we're much more capable of self-destruction now than we were before, but I'm not so sure we're any, any much better virtuously than, than we have been in the past. One of the, one of the dreadful, what would you call it, one of the dreadful deceits or conceits of the age is that we think that because we're technologically advanced, we're therefore culturally and virtuously advanced, but <laughs> patently not so. So um, when it comes to these numbers of arahats and stuff like that, um, we can take them as apocryphal, you know, things that were added on by the imagination to build up the, uh, that whole period. When you look at the actual terigata and teragata, uh, if I remember right, there's about 400 listed there and about 200 or so women. Uh, not so sure. But... Um, it must, if you think of karma and the way that um, our karma, shall we say, produces outward events for us, it's not, it, it's not beyond our imagination to recognize that <clears throat> within past lives these uh, beings, for want of a better word, uh, begin to congregate around a certain person so that when they're born, these are the people are born around them. Uh, and also the effect of the Buddha himself, on people around him. We see it even in, um, you know, in, uh, say, say in politics, you know. You get, you get leaders, uh, some good ones like Gandhi, um, and some rather bad ones <laughs> who uh, create, you know, who head huge movements like Hitler and, and uh, Lenin, Stalin, and people like that, who have um, a sort of uh, um, this ability to gather people around them and, and make them 
make them work and do and, 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 in, and bring about a vision that they have. It's quite, re- quite remarkable, really. You know? So uh, I wouldn't worry too much about these figures, you know. They, there's, you know, there's always a little bit of propaganda in the scriptures, you know, against, especially against the Brahmins. I think I've mentioned this before for those of you who heard my last talks. Remember that the, the Buddha was a Kshatriya, he was a warrior caste, and to the east of Bengal, that's out towards Calcutta, it would seem that the Brahmins were the uh, class, the, the um, caste number one. But as you move to the west, it was still the, the Kshatriyas. So it's, you always hear the Buddha saying, now a real Brahmin is like this. See, so he, he never says a real warrior is like this. <laughs> He's always poking people in the eye with his own little sense of humor, you know. <laughs> so uh, these apocryphal things that gather around the scripture, I think you should take them with a, a pinch of salt. But as to the question as to whether human condition has drastically changed, well, that can only be personal opinion, can't it? But um, history is uh, full of war and disaster and also good things. And uh, these days, of course, it's only because of the power we have that things, that the conditions seem worse because we are capable of doing so much more damage, so much more catastrophe. But as you know, King Ashoka, you know, after the tremendous slaughter against the Kalingas, you know, it changed his mind when he saw the slaughter, which was just about conquering territory, just about gaining land. So, do remember if questions arise out of this, uh, you know, please put them on my next list. Criticism's invited, of course. Um, the next one is, it is said that beings undergo rounds of rebirth. How is separate beings identified in different lives? And to go with that, that is, if there is no individual self, who or what experiences multiple rebirths and becomes liberated and attains nibbana? Um, I think I think we can crack this question by by really just uh, contemplating the present moment, because remember the the idea of being doesn't actually um, pertain now. I mean, I, I mean, I definitely feel like I am a being, <laughs> but but that's my delusion. Uh, there is no being here. There is no self here. Self is a, uh, is a construct, a mental construct. A mental construct. Um, speaking more in sort of, uh, in a more Mahayana vogue, uh, what we have is this uh, Buddha nature, what um, Theravada refers to as the Nibbanic element, the Nibbana data, which doesn't really help very much. And uh, it has a certain qualities. So the quality is this intelligence, this buddho, and on its more passive side, awareness. So awareness and, and, and that intelligence are both the same thing. One is passive in the sense of receptive, opening up, and the other one is active in the sense of seeing. So remember, the Buddha is quite clear. First there's looking, and then there's seeing. 
You've got to look first and then you see. And when this, uh, this intelligence enters into, for want of a better word, enters into or comes in contact with the physical mental processes right, that we call the psychophysical organism, hmm? it, uh, it, forms, it forms a relationship with it. This is me. That's it. This is me. And that, uh, if, you can, if we go back to you know, the womb... Uh, and, that, and, and you can imagine, shall we say, that consciousness being there, and it's coming out of that darkness and into the sensations and stimuli that's slowly growing in that little body and then out into the world. Um, it's coming from that darkness, you see. It's coming from that avidya, that don't-know place. Hmm? And it's not surprising that it then makes a mistake of thinking, well, what I'm experiencing now is actually what I am. And so you can see that the self is a concept, it's, it's, a, it's a relationship, it's a relationship that it's formed with it. It's not an actual thing. So now the whole process of meditation is to break that, relation, break that relationship. Okay? So that's why we're looking at something. So all those things that I would once define as me, like my body, my emotions, I am angry, all that sort of stuff. I am happy. My thoughts, I think, therefore I am. When, when I begin to undermine those concepts of who I am, then, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm undermining this idea of, of, of what a self is. And the end point, of course, is when that relationship is completely put asunder because this Satipanya, this awareness and, intu- and intuitive intelligence, discovers its own quality, its own quality. In your meditation, um, when you're aware of something, you know, very calmly aware of, say, some feeling or sensation arising, see, try, and, try and be aware of the distance that there is between that which knows and what it's looking at. I, 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 I personally refer to that as the Nibbanic gap because if, if we can keep that distance from emotions and physical, and physical uh, sensations, there's no suffering there. See? So the question is, where does this suffering, who's suffering? Where does this suffering arise? Because yeah? when, when you are with, shall we say, what you have noted as, say, anger or depression or anxiety... Uh, when, you, when you actually note it and distance it and, and it's something other, hmm, then, you know, it, because it's not me, then what is it that knows this? What is it that experiences that? Hmm? And sometimes, as it were, when you're in that, uh, you might just see that, almost that spaciousness around it, the edges of it, you see, where there's still that knowing. Hmm? Of course, it's a reflection. It's a reflection of that knowing into the mind as it were but at least it gives us this idea that whatever i th- i thought my being was it's not that and so that's the process of shall we say seeking liberation by way of distinguishing what i am from what i am not and um that process uh, that process of as it were stepping back stepping back from everything as though you're walking towards a cliff 
Yeah? So you're stepping away from it, looking at it. To look at it, you've got to, as it were, push it out of consciousness, you might say. Push it out of that, of that um, embeddedment, that submersion. Yeah? You're pushing it out and looking at it. Yeah? And that, that means that you're stepping back. Now, the thing is that at some point we should fall over the cliff and then we know well, we weren't that in the first place. So it's this case of detaching in that sort of way that uh, slowly undermines the idea of a self. So now, what is it that, that the mind is creating, you see, uh, should we say, in uh, a large conceptual way? <clears throat> so remember that we start with uh, these um, conditionings, and all these conditioning, these habits, when you put them all together, that's all a personality is, isn't it? It's just a compendium of habits, just a collection of different habits. Yeah. So when something arises, then you eat porridge, and then the next morning something else arises, and uh, you eat something else, you eat toast. See, it's just, it's just a compendium of habits as we go through the day, a habit turns up, a conditioning turns up, a response turns up from some old habit. So if, you, if, you, if we watch ourselves during the day, all we are is this flow of conditionings, flow of habits, just coming up, coming up, coming up. And if we catch them and see them as just arising and passing away, then again uh, you get the idea that this idea of a person or a personality uh, isn't true to the way I actually experience things because I can only be that habit at one time. The others are there in potential, but I can only experience or be within this particular habit at this time. Okay? So these, the, the questions that go around, you know, who is it that's reborn or um, how, can, you know, how they're separate beings, see, it's not like that, is it? It's just even now we're being reborn. Even now the body is rebirthing. And the mind is rebirthing. The whole thing is just keeps rebirthing according to its own interior dynamism. And uh, all that's understood is that upon death, the, the mind itself seems to carry on. The body doesn't. The body sloughs off, and the mind, which is meant to be a separate energy, uh, carries on and uh, seeks elsewhere to find existence. Now... The consciousness can't leave that because it's still attached to it. See, so there is that other place, that other place that that we talk about nibbana. You see, where that even that attachment to the mental body is lost. See, and then of course we're into a place where language just doesn't serve us. And the uh, the underlying. Uh, the underlying empowerment of rebirthing is, is, is that delusion that this is what we are. So if we're not this, you know, uh, that's it, we're nothing. So there's that annihilation at the end. That's why we grasp onto life, why we want to keep on becoming, keep on becoming. Only in desperation do we actually want to stop that process, you know, and desire non-becoming, but that leads us into trying to annihilate ourselves. So uh, these questions around uh, rebirth and whatnot, um, <clears throat> I think we, we begin to understand it the more you actually understand uh, what's happening here and now. Just contemplate, just seeing what's happening here and now, that it's not the same person arising and passing away.
One of the um, telltales of a past life memory <clears throat> is that the person uh, remembers something that happened in the past life as that personality. Uh, you might have come across a book which is t- entitled something like 24 Cases Suggestive of Rebirth by a man called Stevenson. And that's, that's one of the telltale things that he points to. So if somebody simply says, well, you know, um, I had a memory last night that I was Napoleon, uh, that just won't do. <laughs> They've got to actually have had a memory in which they were Napoleon. Now, even then you can't, of course, trust it. But even so. Um, and uh, it, it's an area which, you know, won't, won't submit to scientific scrutiny. And... Uh, I, perhaps I should just leave you with this little tale before moving on. But in the Upa Auk tradition, and I believe he's coming here to um, teach next year, because of the uh, practice of jhana, some people get um, these uh, idis come up, these powers. And one of them is past lives. And uh, it would seem that uh, there was a nun who um, said that she remembered all her past lives uh, and remembered working on the railways, uh, I think she said something like 250 years ago. And uh, this was questioned, and she says yes. And then when she was told that the railways weren't invented until <laughs> 150 years ago, it seems she disappeared. And, uh, <laughs> so one has to be a little careful with past lives. Uh, actually, there's, there's one other story, of course, which uh, I think most of you will know, the, of Ed, Edgar, Edward Casey, or Edgar Casey, who was that um, fellow just before the war here in, in the USA. Um, oh, dear, what's the name now? Um, I might be getting confused here, but there was a, a, one of his uh, patients or clients had these amazing past memories of being back in Ireland in a, in a former life. Uh, I've got the note somewhere. And uh, absolutely, absolute detail. And, of course, it was taken to fact. And then somebody researching it came across a book which seemed to be telling all the same details. And it would seem that um, she had, in fact, <laughs> read this book as a child, as a six-year-old. And, of course, with the imagination and the memory is empowered with emotions. And before you know it, it's a past, past life memory. So I think with all these, with all these sorts of things, uh, thinking of my own mind, I always presume it's a liar and not to be trusted. <laughs> the uh, <clears throat> next uh, question, really, let me see now. Uh, are around the wheel of dependent origination. And it asks, could you expound on the idea of dependent origination? What exactly does that mean? And there's another one which says, what is the meaning of the three events in the chain of dependent origination? Ignorance, intentional activities, and relinking, and relinking consciousness. Um, the wheel of dependent origination is... I suppose most simply put, as the Buddha's psychology. That's how he, uh, that's his description of uh, how we come to create uh, suffering for ourselves. And um, 
the first part, the, the underground, the, the underlying motif or the underlying position of the weed append origination, which runs, as it were, underneath it, is the fact that we are in a state of delusion. And these are our fundamental state of being ignorant, of not knowing, of making that mistake. So those are our sankharas, our conditionings, which have been developed on that base of not knowing. And in every moment we enter, there's that, there's that underlying... Uh, um, two things that are running, running underneath everything. So there's a part of us which doesn't know and is making up stories for us. It's making up little delusive ideas and it's just running underneath it. And then on top of that, more obviously, you have the body, the mind, the, uh, the senses, the incoming data, and then uh, how the mind, as it were, uh, takes that in. See, that's the first process, the receiving of data, whether it's from the outside in terms of the five senses or from the inside in terms of memory. And uh, in your meditation, you might just, you might just feel that as a, as a sort of movement towards a sort of grasping, but not grasping in that, in that um, you know, clinging way. It's just a natural movement of the mind to move towards the object to, to look at it, to hear it, to feel it, to know it. And then once, once that's uh, been developed into some sort of conceptual or perceptual idea which is flavoured with feeling, flavoured with emotions and whatnot, then, of course, we get this reaction. And that's where this underlying uh, ignorance and delusion pops up as an actual action of wanting and not wanting. And then... That you get that wheel, that turning, where it's feeding back into the delusion and deepening the ignorance. So there's this constant wheel turning on itself, creating more and more suffering. Now, what we're trying to do, so before, <coughs> before earlier, we were looking at the process of, looking, of seeing the meditation as a process of understanding anatta, not self, by creating that distance. Here, by looking at the process of our psychology, we're looking at, the, the psychological components which uh, make us suffer. So that's why we have to be very diligent to see a thought, to come off the thought, to go back into the emotional state or the mental state that's arisen and to stay very calmly with it and to feel that tanha, that wanting, not wanting, you see, wanting, not wanting. And that that's also can be felt as a sort of reaching out and a sucking into. I don't know whether you use the phrase, but uh, in, 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 in proper British English, we say you get sucked in. So <laughs> you got sucked into something. So if, 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 a, if a, a salesman comes to the door and, and you, you happen to buy the product and they find yourself, you've been sucked in, you see. <laughs> and that's, a, that's exactly, you may actually experience that, that sucking into something. <laughs> and you're gone. And you have to pull yourself out, you know, like out of some sticky molasses. So um, just very briefly, that's what, what that's about. And uh, I'm hoping to uh, give a talk around that at some point. Um, <clears throat> and it's something that, uh, you know, we can directly experience in our, in our practice. Just that, just that point between the given, the Vedana, the feeling, and the, and the thoughts around that feeling, remember that all thought, all images, all stories, they're all metaphor, right? And in our meditation, 
uh, you know, we, we come off that completely and we go into what is actually motivating it, and that's your mental state, that's your conditioning, that's your sankhara. And just by staying there and feeling that draw, whether it's to push it away or to grab it and allowing that to pass away, see, allowing that to pass away, that tanha is again undermining the idea of self. It's undermining the delusion because the delusion here from the self is that this is where I shall be happy. I shall be happy either drenching myself in honey or kicking this noisy dog out. See, so we're always, from a tanha point of view, we're always in, a, in some form of conflict with the world, either grasping something that will never give us the perfect happiness we want or getting rid of something which we can see is not making us happy at all. So <clears throat> that process, you see, we have to see it. We have to see it and just let it go. And just that deconditioning, see, just that deconditioning, just by letting that energy of tanha slowly fade away, so some of the delusion is also passing with it. Or she wouldn't be doing it, you see. And one thing I uh, like to point out is, you know, uh, to catch the moment, if, if we can, just the moment when, the, when that stronger version or strong desire actually passes away. Just to stay right there and taste that contentment. Because that's, that's the mind without desire. And if we can, if we can develop... Um, a taste for that, yeah. You have to uh, you have to cultivate that taste, just like like you might do for uh, for whiskey or something like that. You have to <laughs> you have to you have to cultivate that taste. Oh, now this is contentment. What does that feel like? You see, and then slowly, as we see that that's a much better place to be, then we'll move towards it. So I think that, uh, yes, that draws us to the end of these um, lovely questions. Thank you very much. Um, so one or two things to say. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm going to put up another question sheet, so feel free to uh, you know, add your questions. It keeps me happy if, if nobody else. Next Sunday, uh, Joseph will come over and give a talk, so, so you'll be relieved of me for a little while. And... Uh, for those of you uh, who've been here while I've been giving these <coughs> talks around the Buddha, so we got to the point where he um, uh, he's seen the four characteristics, uh, the the four you know the aging, sickness, old old age, and death. And I thought that what I would do for my for the following talk, and I'll put it up on the board as a choice, is to actually do a contemplative a contemplative contemplative exercise around. Uh, the body. So this is embedded in the Satipatthana discourse, the uh, disgusting nature of the body. So remember, that's when he, he was disgusted with all these, uh, after the party, and he saw all this, this business of, uh, of disheveled women and stuff like that. So there's all that, there's all that to be worked with in terms of the body. Then to do some contemplation around uh, sickness, old age, and death. Then to form a proper relationship to the body. <clears throat> See, that's what we're moving towards, to see it as a precious vehicle. And then after that, to do a little bit of healing, a bit of, bit of new age, just to lift the thing up, you know. And uh, the purpose of that is to discover that we can direct our metta, direct the same force of love towards the actual physical frame. It's the same force of good intention towards it. 
which is either healing, but most times it's fortifying. So I mean to do that at the next, and I'll put it up on the board, so if, if you find that completely repulsive, don't feel that you have to come. So I think that draws uh, my little evening to an end, and I can only hope that my words have been of some assistance to you, and that you will arise liberated before too long. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.